just one moment before we start reading. I did want to highlight a little bit <clears throat> what we've read so far in Exodus um, to make sure we understand a little bit, right? So we see kind of this um, idiomic role, so Adam, this role in which Israel was called to the first Sinai covenant, which we read in Exodus 19. We may say that the forbidden fruit of the tree of knowledge was to Adam uh, what the forbidden with the golden calf was to Israel. So we can see that both Adam and Aaron try to pass that this this blame onto their this transgression, you know, this blame onto others. You know, Adam and Adam kind of like Adam to Eve. So the woman she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate right Genesis. And Aaron to the people of Israel. So they gave it to me and I threw it in the fire and there come out this calf. Chapter 32 of Exodus. So both Adam and Israel are quote-unquote firstborn sons who broke their filial covenants with God almost immediately after those covenants were made, right? And then we started the construction of the tabernacle, which is Exodus 35, 40, and we'll finish that out um, tomorrow. We'll finish out Exodus. So, so far we've been seeing... Um, of course, that this is a sign of God's mercy towards Israel, you know, that the construction and erection of the tabernacle planned before the calf continues after the covenant breaking and renewal. So kind of unexpectedly, the people bring in uh, generous donations of material. We saw this in Exodus 35. So perhaps their piety was spurred on by the 3,000 died. And then we're seeing Bezalel and Oheliab um, said about constructing the tabernacle properly, right? And 35-36, as we read yesterday. And so, when this work is finished, we'll see this tomorrow. Actually, I won't <laughs> talk about that yet, but we'll finish this tomorrow. Um, so, here we're having, of course, again, more of the construction of the ark. And all of that. So, Maxwell, when are we ready? Go ahead. All right. <clears throat> A reading from the book of Exodus, chapters 37 through 38. The making of the covenant box. Bezalel made the covenant box out of acacia wood, 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, and 27 inches high. He covered it with pure gold inside and out, and, and put a gold border all around it. He made four carrying rings of gold for it and attached them to its four feet, with two rings on each side. He made carrying poles of acacia wood, covered them with gold, and put them through the cut the rings on each side of the box. He made a lid of pure gold, 45 inches long and 27 inches wide. He made two winged creatures of hammered gold, one for each end of the lid. He made them so that they formed one piece with the lid. The winged creatures faced each other across the lid, and their outspread wings covered it, making the ta uh, table for the bread offered to God. He made the table out of acacia wood, 36, 36 inches long, 18 inches wide, and 27 inches high. He covered it with pure gold and put a gold border around it. He made a rim three inches wide around it and put a gold border around the rim. He made the Four 
carrying rings of gold for it and put them at the four corners where the legs were. The rings to hold the poles for carrying the table were placed near the rim. He made the poles of acacia wood and covered them with gold. He made the dishes of pure gold for the table, the plates, the cups, the jars, and the bowls to be used for the wine offering, making the lampstand. He made the lampstand of pure gold. He made its base and its shaft of hammered gold, its decorative flowers, including buds and petals, formed one piece with it. Six branches extended from its sides, three from each side. Each of the six branches had three decorative flowers shaped like an almond blossoms with buds and petals. The shaft of the lampstand had four decorative flowers shaped like almond blossoms with buds and petals. There was one bud below each of the three pairs of branches. The, the buds, the branches, and the lampstand were a single piece of pure hammered gold. He made seven lamps for the lampstand, and he made its tongs and trays of pure gold. He used 75 pounds of pure gold to make the lampstand and all of its equipment, making the altar for burning incense. He made an altar out of acacia wood for burning incense. It was square, 18 inches long and 18 inches wide, and it was 36 inches high. Its project projections at the four corners formed one piece with it. He covered its top, all four sides, and its projections with pure gold and put a gold border around it. He made two gold carrying rings for it and attached them below the border on the two sides to help the poles with which it was to be carried. He made the poles of acacia wood and covered them with gold, making the anointing oil and, and the incense. He also made the sacred anointing oil and the pure sweet-smelling incense mixed like perfume, making the altar for burning offerings. For burning offerings, he made an altar out of acacia wood. It was square, seven and a half feet long and seven and a half feet wide, and it was four and a half feet high. He made the projections at the top of the four corners so that they formed one piece with the altar. He covered it all with bronze. He also made all the equipment for the altar, the pans, the shovels, the bowls, the hooks, and the fire pans. All this equipment was made of bronze. He made a bronze grating and put it under the rim of the altar so that it reached halfway up the altar. He made four carrying rings and put them on four corners. He made a carrying poles of acacia wood, covered them with bronze, and put the, in them in the rings on each side of the altar. The, the altar was made of boards and was hollow, making the bronze basin. He made the bronze basin and its bronze base out of the mirrors belonging to the women who served at the entrance of the tent of the Lord's presence. The enclosure for the tent of the Lord's presence. For the tent of the Lord's presence, he had made the enclosure out of fine linen curtains. On the south side, the curtains were 50 yards long, supported by 20 bronze posts and 20 bronze bases with hooks and rods made of silver. The enclosure was the same on the north side. On the west side, there were curtains 25 yards long with 10 posts and 10 bases with hooks and rods made of silver. On the east side, where the entrance was, the enclosure was also 25 yards wide. On each side of the entrance, there were 7.5 yards of curtains with 3 posts and 3 bases. All the curtains around the enclosure were made of fine linen, the bases for the posts were made of bronze, and the hooks, the rods, and the covering of the, of the tops of the posts were made of silver.
All the posts around the enclosure were connected with silver rods. The curtain for the entrance of the enclosure was made of fine linen woven with blue, purple, and red wool decorated with embroidery. It was ten yards long and two and a half yards high, like the curtains of the enclosure. It was supported by four posts and four bronze bases, their hooks, their coverings of their tops, and their rods were made of silver. All the pegs for the tents were, and for the surrounding enclosure were made of bronze. Metals used in the tent of the Lord's presence. Here is a list of the amounts of the metals used in the tent of the Lord's presence, where the two stone tablets were kept on which the Ten Commandments were written. The, the list was ordered by Moses and made by the Levites who worked under the direction of Ithmar, son of Aaron the priest. Bezalel, the son of Uri and the grandson of Har from the tribe of Judah, made everything that the Lord had commanded. His helper, Ohaliab, son of Ahizamak, from the tribe of Dan, was the engraver and a designer and a weaver of fine linen of, and of blue, purple, and red wool. All the gold that had been dedicated to the Lord for the sacred tent weighed 2,195 pounds, weighed according to the official standard. The silver from the census of the community weighed 7,550 pounds, weighed according to the, sta the official standard. This amount equaled the total paid by all persons enrolled in the census, each one paying the required amount weighed weighed according to the official standard. There are 603,550 men 20 years old or older enrolled in the census. Of the silver, 7,500 7, pounds were used to make the 100 bases for the sacred tents and for the curtain, 75 pounds for each base. With the remaining 50 pounds of silver, Bezalel made the rods, the hooks for the posts, and the covering for their tops. The bronze, which was the dedicated to the Lord amounted to 5,310 pounds. With it, he made the basis for the entrance of the tent of the Lord's presence, the bronze altar with its bronze breeding, all the equipment for the altar, the basis for the surrounding enclosure and for the entrance of the enclosure, and all the pegs for the tent and the surrounding enclosure. Thank you, Maxwell, so much for reading all of that. Well, like I said, uh, we're getting to the end of Exodus, and um, there'll be a lot more to say tomorrow. But of course, we had... <coughs> Sorry. <clears throat> the, the construction of the ark, the table, we have the menorah here, the altar of incense. Now, going into chapter 28, here's the altar for burning incense, the court of the tabernacle. Um... And then we have this description of the amount of metal used. Really interesting here. We'll go into more detail tomorrow as we finish out Exodus. Thank you, Maxwell, for reading. Any questions before we move into the Psalms? Okay, just a brief introduction again of the Psalms as I did yesterday. Um, but again, a little overview. Um, I went over the little, a little bit of the structure of the Psalms, but just again to reiterate, uh, the fundamental structure of the Psalter is its division into five books. Right, so we have Book One, Psalm One to Forty One, 
Book 2, Psalms 42 to 72. Book 3, Psalms 73 to 89. Book 4, Psalm 90 to 106. And Book 5, Psalms 107 to 50. So when read as a whole, each book is quite distinct in character and mood. Right, and so we have this, so right, we're in book one, so we have the introduction, introduction and laments of David. And these are Psalms 1 to 41. So right now, we're in Psalms 1 and 2. And actually, uh, formerly the Psalms 1 and 2 belong to book one of the Psalter. They were, unlike most of the other um, Psalms in book one, we'll see this tomorrow as we go further and read Psalm 3. But they've certainly been placed intentionally at the beginning of the Psalter to serve as an introduction, right? Not just to book one, but the entire collection. So, uh, Trey, whenever you're ready, go ahead and read Psalm 2. Okay. Psalm 1. God's promise to his atonement. Why do the nations conspire in the oh, Psalm, Psalm 2, Trey, sorry. Can you hear me? Yes. Psalm I 2. I, I said Psalm 2, right? Isn't this that? You said Psalm 1. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I don't know. <laughs> You're good. God's promise to his anointed. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together. Against the Lord and his anointed, saying... Let us burst, burst their bonds asunder and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord has them in der derision. Um, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break with them them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and trembling. Kiss his feet, or he will be angry. And you will perish in the way. For the wrath is quickly kindled. Happy are all who take refuge in him. Thank you, Trey, for reading that. So a little bit before I go into explanation of Psalm 2, I should have said this before, but really these two psalms, as we read Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, they're united by the theme of blessing or more literally, happiness, right? They present two alternate ways to achieve true happiness, either through meditating on God's law or taking refuge in the Lord and his anointed one. So in this way, Psalm 1 actually, to go over Psalm 1 from yesterday, <clears throat> it functions kind of as a quote-unquote wisdom introduction, right? Suggesting that the Psalter is a book of wisdom, along with Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and so on, of course. In addition to being a song of praise, the Psalter is also a guide for living, right? For right living. And the Psalter, therefore, to reveal 
sorry the the psalter actually reveals the way of the righteous right and david the consequential the consequential uh psalmist right is the man who delights in the law of the lord meditate on it day and night as we read psalm 1 but of course we see the contrast psalm 2 is a royal psalm it's a messianic psalm it extols the royal son of david who's installed in zion as son of god right and so it, oh the whole of uh, following right so we see that contradiction there of here we have this royal psalm And so it really here, speaker proclaims the divine decree, um, making the Israelite king the earthly representative of God, and uh, to warning the kings to obey. And so, as I said, again, this psalm has a messianic meaning, right? And it really has this messianic meaning for the church. The New Testament understands it of Christ. And we can see this in the language, right? Really beautiful. Um, so excited that we're again in Psalms. Any questions before we move on to the gospel? We're finishing up on here, <clears throat> Mark 16. Go ahead and move to Mark 16. Do we have the resurrection of Jesus? Mark 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Solomon, bought spices so they might go and anoint him. Very early, when the sun had risen, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb. They were saying to one another, Who will roll back the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? When they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. On entering the tomb, they saw an old man sitting on the right side, clothed in white robe, and they were utterly amazed. He said to them, Do not be amazed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, the crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter, He is going before you to Galilee. There will you see him. And as he told you, then they went out and fled from the tomb, seized with trembling and bewilderment. They said nothing to no one, to anyone, for they were afraid. Right here, I want to highlight um, two elements. First, this reference to the Sabbath at the very beginning. Really, of course, um, we hear the Sabbath today, or Christians today, we hear the Sabbath and we think about Sunday. Um, Sunday is a traditional Christian day of rest. But of course, we know that it was not the case for Jews. The Sabbath was Saturday. Right? And so also for the Jews, the day would begin at sunset and not at midnight, but at sunset. So the Sabbath would begin on Friday evening at sundown and then on Saturday evening at sundown. So the reason that the women are coming to the tomb on Sunday morning is because the Jewish law obliged him obliged them <clears throat> to rest from sundown for sundown friday to sundown saturday and so after jesus is laid in the tomb by joseph of Arimathea on friday afternoon right before the sun goes down all the jews then would have uh, gone to rest on 
Friday night. They would have had rest and wait and um, all Saturday even, right? So if they wanted to go and anoint the body and prepare it and take big more care of it then, they were able to on Friday with the rush burial of Jesus, they wouldn't have been able to do it because it was forbidden because it was the Sabbath day of rest. And then once the sun goes down on Saturday night, it's pitch black, it's dark. So what they do, they have to wait until first light on Sunday morning. And that is what leads them to discovery resurrection on the first day of the week. So Mark uses that language the first day of the week. Now when we hear the first day of the week, we might think Sunday, and that's right. But when a Jew would have heard this word the first day, that they're going to think back um, to Genesis as well. Because remember, Genesis is um, in Genesis, the first day of the week is a day of the creation. Sunday is a day the world was made, and Sunday is not just the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. It's also the day that the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. So it's the day also that through the power of the Spirit and Word, God said, let there be light. Right? So on the very first day, we have God, we have the Spirit, we have the Word, a kind of anticipation of the Trinity. Right? And we also have creation of light, which points toward the fact that in Mark 16, we just it's not on Sunday Christ is raised from the dead. But when did it happen? They went to the tomb when the sun had risen. So in other words, at the first light, right? As I said, so just as the light dawns on Sunday in Genesis 1, at the beginning of creation, so now they discover the truth of the resurrection at dawn on Easter Sunday morning. So these are the parallels, right, of the book of Genesis. Um, powerful powerful parallels there right so also we see that the purpose of this narrative is to show that the tomb is empty right going further but the tomb that jesus has been raised and <clears throat> this verse verse 7 going before you to galilee this is fulfillment that we see um from mark 14 so the tomb the the women find the tomb empty and an angel stationed there announced it to them what happened right and they're told to proclaim the news to peter and the disciples in order to prepare them for a reunion with him so here in March's composition of the gospel um here ends at verse eight with the women telling no one because they were afraid right so this is abrupt termination because some people believe the original ending of the gospel may have been lost right so it's very interesting Going further, uh, we have this longer ending, the appearance to Mary Magdalene. When he had risen early on the first day of the week, he appeared to first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and told his companions who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that they, he was still alive, or he was alive, he had been seen by her they do not believe the appearance of the twelve disciples. After this, he appeared in another form to two of them walking along on their way to the country. They returned and told the others, but did not believe them either. The Commission of Eleven But later, as eleven were at the table, he appeared to them and rebuked them for their unbelief, 
and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had been raised. He said to them, Go into the, go into the whole world and proclaim the gospel to every creature. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. These signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. They will speak new languages. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they dream any deadly thing, it will not harm them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. The Ascension of Jesus. So then, Jesus, the Lord Jesus, after he spoke to them, was taken into heaven and took his seat at the right hand of God. But they went forth and preached everywhere, where the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word through accompanying signs. The shorter end. And they reported all the instructions briefly to Peter's companions. Afterwards, Jesus himself, through him, through them, sent forth the east to the west, the sacred and the imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. Amen. First, we have this um, longer ending, right? Oh. So it's termed a longer ending um, to the Markin Gospel by comparison with a breach, with a briefer conclusion found in some less important um, manuscripts, right? And here is a, a footnote that I'm reading, and has traditionally been accepted as a canonical part of the gospel and was defined such as the Council of Trent. But early citations of it by the fathers indicate that it was composed by the second century and although the vocabulary and style indicate that it was written by someone other than Mark. It is general it is a general resume of the material concerning the appearances of the risen Jesus reflecting in particular traditions that we see in Luke and John. Right, and then we have the shorter ending. This is after um Mark, after the before the longer ending in the fourth, the seventh century Greek manuscripts as well as in um the one actually in old Latin version. It also appears alone without the longer ending. Very interesting there. So, highlighting this, um, we see in verse 20, again, But they went forth and preached everywhere, where the Lord worked with them, and confirmed the word through accompanying signs. Now, I want to take a minute and just think about what that means, right? I think I meant to, to talk about faith and reason, um, the heart and head, if you will. Right, so we know that countless people have come to come to faith through come to faith in Jesus Christ through um, ongoing preaching of the good news, right, of the gospel, and also through signs, just healings and miracles, um, that confirm Christ's message. And with this combination, we begin to see the natural relationship between faith and reason, heart and head. Those go hand in hand, really. Because um, without it, then you, you have the heresy of rationalism, which means you, you only have reason. That's how we know to God. Or you just have the heresy 
Oh, you just have faith, which is the heresy of Judaism, right? We must first, we must have both, right? We cannot have one without the other. But first, we must recognize that faith is a gift from God. We must have faith first, right? Through God's grace and the help of the Holy Ghost, our hearts turn toward God, right? God opens our minds so that we may accept and believe the truth. We must actively welcome God's grace and accept the truth. But we do not accept the truth by blind faith, right? We must also use our ability to reason. God created us with both faith and reason, heart and head, right? They do not contradict each other, but rather they work together to help us arrive at the truth. So faith leads us to desire to know God and better. So we use our reason to learn more about God. Right, and so once we learn more about God, our faith deepens and we desire to know God even more. So this really means that faith and reason become a never-ending circle that draws us closer to God. Right, I believe it's St. Anselm that says, I don't understand to believe, I believe to understand. Right, we have this faith first, um, but always having faith and reason together as one. So, uh, do a bit of a short Bible study today. Um, that's pretty much all I have. If anyone has any questions, um, please feel free to ask. Pretty much it. We can wrap up. Um, sorry, it's a little short, but we can end in prayer. One moment. <laughs>